We are in part eight of our wake up series through the book of Isaiah. And I entitled this morning's message, Wake Up to Repentance. And I want to take a little bit different attack on this, on the idea of repentance. And you're going to find that we start out in one place and then the message bends around and then comes at us from a totally different direction, rather subtly, in the passages of Isaiah that we're covering. So what we've basically done is we covered 12 chapters of God talking about judgment upon his people, his own chosen people, the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden, last week, we had this amazing oasis of refreshment. It was like encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Well, we return as God goes back to the issue of repentance. This time, it's not about Israel. This time, it's about the surrounding nations, right? These surrounding nations are involved in wickedness just like his kids were. And God is basically saying, listen, I cleaned up at home first. Now I'm coming after you. I'm not going to yell at you and let my kids be spoiled brats. I'm going to make sure that if I correct you, I correct them as well. Because God is consistent in his view of sin. So just for a moment, think about this. Why is sin such a big deal? Well, sin is that which is contrary to God. It's contrary to his very nature. And if God is all that is good, if God is all that is loving, if God is all that is pure, holy, and righteous, then that means sin is the opposite of all of that. Of course it's offensive to him. If it was not offensive to him, he would have that as part of his nature. But practically speaking, sin's a big deal because it's creation, us, trying to tell the creator the very reason of our entire reality that we know better, that we want what we want. That we want to be the centerpiece of the show. That we want the book to be about us and not about him. And that is offensive to God. So he continually brings back before us this idea of repentance. So what is repentance? Repentance is not merely feeling bad about stuff. It is not even merely confession. I find that because of the way that God has worked with me in the past... Feeling bad and confession comes relatively easy to me. I can see very clearly the places that I screwed up. And I can obviously see the ramifications of those. And I just feel bad. Feeling bad kind of, I'm pretty good at it. You know what I mean? And then confession is the idea that I'm going to tell God what I did. That's easy for me too because I know he already knows. You know what I mean? It'd be one thing if I was confessing to someone that didn't know, and then you go, oh my gosh, now they know. Well, confessing to God is kind of silly in the sense that if you really think you need to hold back because he doesn't know, no, he already knows. He was there. Repentance is another level. Repentance means I will turn from that and do all that is in my power to do the opposite, to do otherwise. It means I'm going to change my behavior. That's where I have a problem. If I could change my behavior, I would have changed it a long time ago. And as a matter of fact, if I say, God, I repent from that, I know full well that the majority of the time I'm planning on doing it again. How is that repentance? That's why it's such a big deal to me. And I go, God, I don't even know how to repent. 
I don't even know what to do to change it. I guess my heart is too hard or I'm too lost or I'm too weak. And then it began to dawn on me that just like everything else in the Bible, it's not only dependent on us. We need God's power to do everything, including repent. We can't pray without God's help. We can't read the Bible without God's help. So how in the world are we going to repent without God's help? If he really looked at us and said, no, you do all the work, change yourself. Then we are stuck. But I think that the heart of God calling us to repentance is saying, stop resisting me. I'll do the work. Just get out of the way. Quit jamming up the system. If I give you victory in an area, walk in that victory. Don't immediately run back to your vomit. You know what I mean? Is he saying, if I call you out and I give you clarity on ways to change, make those changes. But he's not sliding it all back to us and saying, I will re-engage with you when you clean up your mess. Repentance is so necessary because of the hardness of our hearts. And so will we hear a lot about repentance in Isaiah? It's going to be the entire book. It's almost like the year of repentance, right? And everyone's like, man, that sounds like a drag, right? Unless you realize what follows repentance and what follows repentance is blessing. And I think we can all agree that's worth striving for. But here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that we look outside and we see so much sin. And we judge that. We look at Hollywood. We judge that. We look at other nations. We judge them. And yet the fill in the blank is still true. I've shared it with you before. I'll share it with you again. It is this. That which God hates in the world, he hates in us. That which God hates in the world, he hates in us. Notice very clearly what I did not say. God does not hate people. He hates the sin that is dwelling in those people. Therefore, he will consistently say, repent, get rid of that garbage because I want to bless you. Get rid of that garbage so we can play again. Get rid of that garbage so I can take you on an adventure and we can be one together. Have you noticed that historically all nations tend to get arrogant and then fall? It's almost like you can read it through history and it goes one after the other. It's the Roman Empire, it's the Greek Empire, it's the Persian Empire. I mean, it's just one after another. It seems that everybody gets cocky and then they fall, right? We all know the famous verse, pride goes before the fall. We, we get all that. But what's intriguing is that we as individuals keep doing the same thing. Here's the problem with that. And this, I believe, is kind of the tension that God has to live under. We cry out that we say, if you're a loving dad... You will give us good gifts. You will empower us. And then he gives us good gifts and empowers us. Then we think it's us. Because he does it so subtly. He does it so consistently. We believe it's us. We start buying our own press. We take all the feedback other people are giving us. And we get arrogant about it. So should he not empower us at all? So that we won't become arrogant? No, then we would all be angry at him because he never blessed us. So how does he win in this scenario? Either he doesn't bless us or he does bless us. Either way, we curse his name. That is a great, I would imagine, a great frustration and tension that he's saying, why can't I just give you a gift and you, in turn, utilize it for my glory? Why can't we do that? Why is that so hard to understand? Why, if I give you something that impresses people, why do you take all the praise? 
Why are you not then taking it, saying thank you, and turning it around and handing it to me? Why is there such a resistance to that? Why does arrogance always have to follow if I gift you, if I give you gifts of any sort? Well, what we find is that if that goes on too long, God just takes out the nation. And of course, that is my concern for America, right? It's, it, it always has been because America is really good at a lot of things. Why? Well, if there's anything good that we do, it's from the Lord. So if the Lord has gifted us as a nation and we're incredible at it, and you know what? There's some things that we do better than everybody else in the world. And then unfortunately, we get cocky about that. And we actually stop believing that God gave it to us, think it's all us, and we start harming other people with it. That doesn't make sense. So God's going to have to teach our nation what it means to repent. Over the next 11 chapters, we will see him deal with these different nations. We will cover seven chapters today in our short amount of time. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by uh, what's called a paraphrase, right? Uh, is that I'm going to go through and highlight passages, and then I'm going to, wherever he duplicates himself or says something that can be summed up in a conceptual word, I will jump forward, and I'll let you know where we're at. So we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 13. If you turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1. The one thing we need to remember is that Isaiah is gathered together in concepts, themes, not chronology. It is not all in order. As he is mentioning the judgment upon these nations, he is not saying, and this one will get knocked down first, then this one, then this one. He is not doing that. He is saying, I will deal with all of these nations in time. Sometimes he humbled them in Isaiah's day. Sometimes a hundred years from Isaiah's day. Sometimes 2,000 years from Isaiah's day. Sometimes it is still yet to come at the return of Jesus Christ when he sets up his kingdom here on earth. So as we read through this, you're going to go, well, when did that happen? Well, when did that happen? I'm going to post all my notes online, make sure that you can go through and kind of pick up some of the dates and do your own study. And a lot of them have already been fulfilled, but there's a good piece that is still yet to come that may well be fulfilled even before our very eyes. We begin in Isaiah 13:1. the oracle, that means the word from God. This is not Isaiah's opinion. This is not Isaiah getting ticked off at other nations. There's no personal vendetta here. He is merely recording how God is going to deal with the nations around him. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. And have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land. From the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the almighty, from El Shaddai, it will come. Know this, that a lot of us think of El Shaddai with Amy Grant. 
uh, just just so you know, El Shaddai, Shaddai comes from Shod in Hebrew, and it means destruction. So it's not quite as cute as the song, but it's still true about God. Verse 17, after it says, the day that the Lord comes with judgment will be terrifying, and he will put their arrogance to an end. Verse 17, behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. Verse 21, but wild animals will lie down there. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. All right, let me throw up a map here on the screen for you. And let's talk a little bit about Babylon and what kind of happens with this nation. Um, On here, you can see that Babylon is right here on the right hand side of your screen. It is to the east of the area of Israel. Now, One of the difficulties as we read about Assyria and Babylon in the Bible, especially in Isaiah's day or afterwards, is that they were very, very linked together. Sometimes the Assyrians took over the Babylonians. Sometimes the Babylonians partnered with other people and took over the Assyrians. So they were very linked together. As a matter of fact, for quite some time, the Assyrian Empire used Nineveh as its political capital but used Babylon as its cultural capital. Okay, so for example, you think about California. What is the capital of California? It's Sacramento. However, we know that by and large, more people know about California through L.A. than they know about Sacramento. Same kind of concept, right? In America, our capital is in Washington, D.C., but people know more about New York than they know about Washington, D.C. around the world. Same concept. Well, this Babylon started way, way back. As a matter of fact, we know that it shares a similar root name in a story that happens in Genesis called the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is simply the story that God said to all mankind, go out, spread around the world, be with me, and lead my kingdom. Well, mankind didn't do that. They all gathered together. They said, we want to make something that talks about how great we are, We are very gifted and knowledgeable and brilliant. And they began to build a ziggurat in a place that was known as Babel. As they built this pyramid-like structure, the idea was let's leave a monument to talk about how great mankind is and how we can do anything we set our minds to. Well, God didn't take kindly to that challenge. He sent down a confusion of the languages. Nobody could understand each other. The people groups separated out, and we had multiple languages that spread out across the face of the earth. That same location, over time, became the mighty city of Babylon. And no matter what happens, Babylon never seems to be a good place. Babylon became the center of opulence and extravagance and gluttony and human pride And sure enough, at one point in Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens. Where is Babylon today? Iraq. Do you think of Hanging Gardens in the middle of the deserts of Iraq? You do not. 
Why? Because it didn't always look like that. So sure enough, a lot of nations wanted to have Babylon as their shiny trophy piece. Man, I run Sin City. I'm the guy who has this. I'm the guy who has all the extravagance. So it was conquered a lot of different times. Now, ultimately, it ended up getting beat down, rebuilt, beat down, and then eventually it went quiet. In our day, there is no city of Babylon. You can't go there if you check Expedia or Travelocity. There's nowhere to stay, right? So in some senses, you would say, oh, so this was fulfilled. Hold on. There's actually a phrase in there that says it will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. It all depends on how you read Revelation. Revelation 17 through 19, the Bible says that Babylon will rise again. Now, some people who take Revelation more literally believe that a world leader will rebuild this city. Now, there were some suggestions in the past that Saddam Hussein was going to try to rebuild it. That didn't go so awesome for him. It will be rebuilt to try to be the center of human pride and that when the Messiah comes back, he will decimate it. I will suggest to you that although it has been humbled in the past, although it has been crushed, when Jesus shows back, it will be demolished completely, never to be rebuilt again. Pick it up in 14.1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. Meaning, after he's done with the judgment piece about his kids, his blessing will flow into their lives as they repent. And he will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When did that happen? When has Israel been the big dog, the superpower of the world that actually everyone else submits to? That hasn't happened. I mean, even in the monarchy, it was pretty awesome when King David ruled. But this is not talking about that. This is after all that. So when are they going to be the central figure of the Middle East? That indeed will happen when Jesus Christ comes again and sets up his reign. Verse 3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And he says at the beginning, oh, how God has humbled the once terrible oppressor who had no mercy. The grave is calling you. Pick it up in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, which in Latin is translated what? Lucifer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, just like the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, I will ascend to heaven. I will, above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Quick side note, a lot of scholars, as they read the passage in Ezekiel and they read the passage here, they wonder whether or not prophetically he is restating what Satan said when Lucifer tried to take the throne of God. And you got to think to yourself, why would Satan, 
who can see God dare think he can take it? What, what was in his head? Well, I don't know what's in our head when we rebel against God. Pride. Pride is shockingly obscuring. And you would look and you go, but he can see him. Yeah, but remember how God deals with his creation. Is that God gives them gifts. As a matter of fact, the Bible seems to suggest that Lucifer was the pinnacle of God's creation. Beautiful, majestic, powerful, almost like his right hand man. He did everything through him. And you would imagine if you are that highly gifted, if you run creation for God, eventually you buy your own press. You accept it all as you're doing it and you turn around and go, I don't need that boss. I'm the one that's making the company run. Well, that didn't go so well for him either. But I think that what's so shocking is that you have these kings saying the same thing as Satan. Is it possible that they're learning it from Satan? Is it possible that he's the one speaking through them? Is it possible that they're duplicating his attitude? Is it possible those same phrases dwell in us? Part of what should be so shaming about sin in our lives is that we are willingly partnering with the enemy. The guy we say we're resisting. But in the pockets of sin of our lives, we're giving him a pass, we're agreeing with him, and shaking hands with the enemy. And then we go back to our regular lives and say, no, 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 I'm against that guy. I'm against that guy. Who's double-minded? Who is the one that is, has two faces? It's us, right? We shake hands with the devil when we want in secret. But verbally and outwardly, we say that he is our enemy. That's a challenge. He said, so you think that you're going to take me, do you? Well, let me just tell you this. You will be brought down low. The grave is calling. He's on the phone right now. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of kings who have died before. And you know what? They're going to get up in honor of you as you walk into death. You will not receive a burial like they receive. You will be laid bare out and you will be humiliated and shamed. Now, indeed, in Isaiah's day, there was a king of Assyria that it is believed is being talked about here that ran the nation of Babylon at that time. And indeed, he was assassinated by his sons and did not receive a proper burial. This is fulfilled in the days around Isaiah. But is there a bigger meaning to all this? Certainly there is, and it's for us. It says in verse 24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land. All right, now we switch from Babylon specific to Assyria. Even though they're linked together, and there's a little tiny passage about Assyria, he said that he will humble him. Assyria eventually was attacked and taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. That's who he was talking about before. I'm bringing the Medes against them. I will set up the mighty ones. They will be my consecrated ones. They will be my hammer of judgment against Babylon, against Assyria. And yes, they were destroyed. The Assyrian Empire was wiped out. Babylon was taken over. But it says that this time, this particular prophecy, Assyrian will be broken in my own land. When was Assyria humbled in the land of Israel? In 701 BC. This is another fulfilled prophecy. 
In 701 BC, if you remember, the Assyrian nation came down, took everything, walked right up to the front of Jerusalem, was going to siege it, had 175,000 warriors surrounding it. But Hezekiah the king stood strong in his faith. Isaiah encouraged him. And while they held there, the angel of God came out in the nighttime and slayed the entire army. And they had to go back home. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. It says, on my mountains, I will trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulders. Verse 28, in the year that King Ahaz died, nobody knows because the Bible does not tell us when he died. And there was a weird transition from him and the next king. So there's a 12 year window that he could have died. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be the flying fiery serpent. Who in the world knows what that means? That's weird. Man, you just read it and you go, yeah, I don't get it. It's actually super simple. Here's why. Is it says that the Philistines right down here, this little group, remember they always got picked on by the Assyrians. They didn't like the Assyrians either. So in 722, after the Assyrians did a bunch of damage, their king was killed. And Philistines threw a party. Yeah, right on. Take him down. And he said, hold up, save the cake, put it in the fridge. When that snake that you don't like gets killed, you're going to get a poisonous snake after him. And when that poisonous snake gets killed, you're going to get a flying poisonous snake after him. In other words, all it's going to do is get worse. Let's not get so excited yet. Right? Because the word for serpents at the beginning is regular snakes. Then adders is poisonous snakes. And then the flying cobra thing was actually an Assyrian iconography. It was actually a picture that the Assyrians drew. They had a flying cobra. And he's saying, listen, it's just going to get worse. I'm not done with Assyria yet. So don't throw a party yet. There's more judgment to come. Then it says this. Chapter 15, verse 1. Moab is undone. And then he chronicles 17 cities in Moab that cry, who are the Moabites? Where is Moab? Well, look on the map. It's right here. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea from Judah, right? Moab and Ammon, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Anybody know where those guys started? Creepy story. I'll keep it PG-13 for the older folks. Here we go. Remember the story of Lot. Lot uh, hung out in a city named Sodom. We know it from Sodom and Gomorrah. When the angels came in and said, God is going to destroy this land, get out, he ran out along with his family. The key figures in that were his wife and his two daughters. However, his wife turned back, turned into a pillar of salt. First time she was quiet in years. (laughs) No, not really. I just added that. (laughs) He couldn't take her with him, right? So they left mama behind, right? And they moved on. They went and lived in caves for years. The problem was there was no guys to date or to marry, and the girls wanted children, and so they got dad drunk. The firstborn was Moab, the secondborn was Ammon, and that's where the Moabites and the Ammonites came from. They were enemies of Israel uh, their entire existence. They were the ones that... 
the women seduced the men of Israel and there was a massive judgment that came down in the period of judges for 18 years. They oppressed the Israelites and had to have a deliverer come and get them out of that. I mean, it was that King David had to fight him. King Saul had to fight him. Unfortunately, Solomon united with them and brought in their terrible gods into Israel. But because of the wickedness that went on in Moab and because of their arrogance and pride, that's why it was such a huge deal that when God chose a woman to enter into the Messiah's lineage, he chose Ruth, the Moabitess. That's why that story is such a big deal. Everyone's like, what? No, those people, they have a weird beginning. They have a whole weird history. We don't involve them with our Messiah. God said, don't tell me what I can and cannot use. I will redeem anything that I want to redeem. Sure enough, what a powerful story. Chapter 16, verse 1. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. In other words, send a peace offering to Israel because God's against you and you know that he's protecting them. From Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Verse 4. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, meaning in the royal line, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence in his idle boasting. He is not right. Therefore, the cities will mourn its rapid destruction. When will Israel reign over Moab? When will they bring in a leader? That is the, the Messiah's return. That again is a future prophecy. Chapter 17, verse 1. Behold Damascus. Oh, that's on our map. I like that. Because I can use my pointer. Damascus, the capital of the Syrian nation, the Aramean people, depending on what part in history you're at. Damascus, now a judgment comes upon them. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins, like the reaping of a field, verse 7. In that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made, verse 10. Why is all this happening? For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and you have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant, I will destroy. Pause. What did you just hear? You just heard God say, I will redeem Syria. I will call them back. I'm bringing judgment because they forgot me. That is a light years different from how the Jews viewed it. Why? Because they viewed it kind of like Americans view it. Here's how we view it. And I'll be honest for all of us. We think that there are good guys in the world and there's bad guys in the world. The good countries are America and Israel. The bad guys are everybody else. Right? We're the only ones that have pure motives, right? Yeah, that's true. But we see them as good and bad. And when we look in the Bible, we also see, well, God works with Israel and he hates everybody else. What did you just hear? I will redeem Syria. And the only reason I'm bringing judgment on them is they forgot me. You can't forget something you never knew. I will have them return to me. That means they are his people too. And this is where our minds need to expand outward. God is not only interested in Israel in the Bible. He's interested in all the nations of the world. 
He is not only interested in America today. He's interested in all the nations of the world. And he is drawing them back to himself and he's loving on them and bringing about judgment to restore them, to heal them, to save them, just as he has done for us. But to a Jew, that's a bit offensive. So I will merely plant the seed by saying this, who are your enemies? And does God get to work on them too? Pick it up in chapter 18, 18, one. You guys like going through the Bible this fast? Everyone's like, man, we're making progress. This is awesome. Ah, the land of whirring wings. Now, that either means activity. It's a, a lot of people think it has to do with the flying beetle or the tsetse fly, that constant sound from down below into Africa. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Cush is a nation. You'll notice on this map it has Cush right here underneath Egypt. Cush at one time was a big empire that covered Sudan, Somalia, and down into Ethiopia. So we're talking about deeper into the heart of Africa. All right. It says it is beyond the rivers of Cush and they send ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters, meaning light boats that can navigate shallow rivers. Go, you swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth. What, what do you mean? What does that mean? What, we're bumpy? What, what do you mean tall and smooth? All the guys in the Middle East didn't shave. They did. And they were like, ooh, you are so smooth. Look at you. I like your chin. I can see it, right? It was, I don't know why they spoke like the most interesting man in the world, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Only half of you got that joke because you don't listen to alcohol commercials. All right, we move on. <laughs> uh, I don't always read the Bible, but when I do, you know, <laughs> <All right. laughs> that's not in my notes. Here we go. <laughs> uh, the, the idea was they were known as the Nubians. Nubia was down in the, in South in Africa. And the historians even wrote back at this time, man, these people are stunning. They're absolutely beautiful. And because they didn't have the long beards, they didn't have all that. They looked and they're like, man, something's wrong with you. What's going on with you? I mean, you're darker than I am. And they would even mention that Cushite became known as black in the language. And you notice that Moses's wife was a Cushite. Then you found out that that caused an irritation amongst Miriam and Aaron. And there was all kinds of tension. You wonder how much of that was a racial issue. Ah, intriguing. Funny how God works that all in. Go to the nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. He said, I'm putting the world on notice. All that you have built will be a waste. Verse 7. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. God will extend his ministry down into the deeper parts of Africa and even receive their worship and praise when he's done with judgment. Chapter 19, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Ah, that's one we know. We know where they're at on the map. We know about the Exodus and Israel being in them under oppression for 400 years. But one thing that we forget about, why were they there in the first place? So much we look at, and the Jews always look at Egypt was the big bad guys. They were the ones that made us slaves. Well, hold on a second. How'd you get there in the first place? 
oh, that's right, because God rescued Joseph, got him into Egypt, Egypt embraced him as God made him glorified, and as he became embraced by the nation of Egypt, they were saved by being brought in and cared for by the Egyptian empire. The Egyptian empire wasn't always the bad guys. Eventually, leadership changed, and they became the bad guys, and they were under slavery for 400 years. Then God did the exodus, the plagues rained down, and they were let out. So the Jews all know as Egypt as the big superpower. So this verse is going to be really weird to them. God comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, just like they did during the plagues. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. It says, and God will turn them on themselves in inner turmoil. He will confuse their wise men. He will give them over to a harsh and conquering nation. And the Nile will dry up and ruin their economy. When did that happen? Well, the inner turmoil happened in the 22nd and 23rd dynasties of Egypt. Is that a full fulfillment? No. When will this happen? This again is part past, part future prophecy. God will come in and will reach down and do amazing things in Egypt, but it will be after judgment. The most powerful passage that we have all morning is the following verses from verse 18 to 25. It says this, in that day, what day? A future day. The day that the Messiah comes back and brings revival on the Middle East. In the day that Jesus Christ comes and reigns on this earth. Right? So it says, in that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan. That means they're speaking the Jews' language. Why? And they will swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Although in history, there was a time when Egypt did set up a temple to Yahweh and did turn their hearts towards God. It was only temporary. That is not a full fulfillment that is to come. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts, verse 20, in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a what? A savior and a defender. And he will deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they'll make vows to the Lord and perform them. Those are words that have only been used of Israel. There will be a mighty revival in Egypt. And they will be called home, just like he did with his children. Verse 22, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. That's called sanctification. Striking and healing, bringing about discipline, seeking repentance, bringing blessing. And they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and he will heal them. Wait, it doesn't stop there. Verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. What? They're the mean, nasty people that have been taking over our land. They're the ones that just took us into exile. God, what are you doing? We don't like those guys. Jonah doesn't even want to preach to those guys. God, you can't save them. In that day, Israel will be the third 
with Egypt, with Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I'm going to throw up the closing challenge on the screen right now to make my closing point. It's this. Be willing to accept that your enemies may repent and become your brothers. What are you going to do? Do you believe that God can work on your enemies or are they just bad guys? What, you're the good guy? Because you act monstrously towards others. Do not tell me that there is different categories of people like that. What are you going to do? If God presents you with a challenge he presented to Corrie ten Boom. Anybody remember who Corrie ten Boom is? She was a woman that lived through the Holocaust. The Nazis took her into concentration camp. Her and her family and all of her family died. They were gassed. They were burned. They were tortured. They were humiliated. She escaped the only one of her family that got out of it. As she got out, she began to go around and speak about the goodness of God and about his love and about forgiveness. She was at one of the conferences when who would show up but one of the guards that she remembers his face that's burned into her memory forever, that he was one that had harmed her sister even before she died. What are you going to do when God has your enemy with tears of repentance and forgiveness in front of you? Are you going to turn your back and walk away because they do not deserve it? I ask you this. Why do you deserve it? Why did God show mercy to you in the same way that he has shown kindness and mercy and forgiveness and grace to you who are monstrous in your hearts? So, too, is he working on the enemies in this world? People that you don't think are worthy of redemption. We have to get our mind expanded to think God thoughts, to begin to say, God, the very person I hate, why am I not praying for their repentance? Why am I not praying? Because if God would save them, what would that mean for this world? What would that mean for your healing? What would that mean for your restoration? What would that mean for them stopping hurting everybody else? I believe that our first calling is to pray for them. Amen? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for tilling the soil of our hearts that we might be receptive to what you're telling us. That God, that we have people in our mind right now that we think God don't save them. They don't deserve it. Lord, forgive us for those thoughts. That you have called out even to the enemies of the earth and called them to repentance. You have called them to be with you. You're not excusing what they do. You're not saying what they do is right. But God, we pray that just as you extended mercy to us, would you extend mercy to our enemies that they might become brothers and sisters. That one day they would call out to you and we could worship side by side with them. And Lord, that you would demonstrate yourself mighty. For we know that apart from you, there's no way that's going to happen. But may we sing your praise as you do the impossible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.